Hello and welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. How does one go from being deep in debt to building a business teaching others about money? That is the question. J.D. Roth is the founder of Get Rich Slowly, a personal finance blog. He hoped that by sharing his journey, it would keep him motivated and help others who were in similar trouble. Well, it changed his life. He dug himself out of debt, quit his day job, and published a book, then sold his blog. J.D. is here to talk about his personal journey and how he has truly created the life he wanted. J.D., hello and welcome to my show. Thanks, Corinne. It's good to be here. Great. Uh, So I want to go back to you were deeply in debt. What gave you this idea to start a blog? Well, I had been blogging for a long time. Um, I, I'm a computer nerd at heart. And so I had been uh, on the internet since I first learned about it, uh, uh, on the web anyhow, uh, since like 1993 or 94. And uh, I had had a website and I had fooled around with what were called online journals. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you used to maintain those by hand. There, there wasn't any automated software to do that. <laughs> and then when blogging came around, uh, I started a blog. Uh, my first blog was in 2001 and I just wrote about cats and computers and comic books and all sorts of uh, the, the things I loved and wanted to share with my friends and family. And then when I decided I wanted to get out of debt, uh, it, it occurred to me, uh, well, first of all, I, I wrote an article on my personal blog about the fact that I wanted to get out of debt and the things that I was learning about managing money. And that article uh, was very popular. It was the first time I realized an article could be popular uh, from a blog. And that inspired me to, about a year later, start a blog specifically do- uh, devoted to money management. Okay. So, you know, I, I thank you for going back for how long because it wasn't like your journey started in 2006. You had no, been no. <laughs> tinkering for a long time with this stuff. Right. It, it, GetRichSlowly.org uh, started in 2006. But, uh, I mean, the seeds of this go back a long, long way. Uh, my blog has been very specifically uh, focused on the psychology of personal finance because I think the psychology is much more important than the uh, the mathematics because we all understand the math. Mm-hmm. If you spend less than you earn, you're going to uh, build wealth and get out of debt. Uh, that's not the hard part. The hard part is the psychology. So I have a psychology degree. Uh, I also have been writing all my life. I have an English minor and uh, I've been writing poetry and science fiction and all that stuff for as long as I can remember. And plus I'm interested in computers and I have a lot of experience with debt. So all of that came (laughs) together like in a perfect storm in uh, 2006 and that's where Get Rich Slowly came from. So I just interviewed Pam Slim and her book is Body of Work and how you kind of tie everything together. And that right there, you just succinct her book. (laughs) You tied everything together. I haven't, I've I've got a copy here on my desk, but I haven't started reading that yet. It's a great book. Um, So, so you started this blog and it, it wasn't, it doesn't even sound like you were out there to try to educate people. It was kind of like how you were doing stuff anyways. Right. I mean, 
I had a couple of goals. I, I always say that I had three goals in mind okay. when I started this. Uh, the first was to just for myself to keep a record of what I was learning and what my progress was like. Uh, I, I wanted to be able to document uh, my success, I guess, and to hold myself accountable. Uh, my second purpose was to help other people achieve the same thing. I knew that some of my friends were in debt, my brother, and uh, I wanted to be able to give them information that they could use uh, to turn their lives around if they wanted. And the third purpose I had was to try to make a little extra money. I had uh, recently become aware that, oh, people can make money online with Google ads and so on. And uh, I wanted to try to do a little bit of that myself as a step or as a means to help myself get out of debt more quickly. I wanted to make some extra money. How long did it take you to make extra money? <laughs> well, you know, so I, I needed to get my spreadsheet. People keep asking me this. I have a spreadsheet somewhere that shows the progress. I, I think I made something like $1.58 on the first day. And uh, it was single digit dollars for several months. Uh, but the site grew rapidly, much more rapidly than I had expected or could have ever anticipated. And uh, as it grew, my income grew so that within, I think it was about 15 months, I was making as much from the blog as I was making at my day job. So it, it didn't take long. Wow. Wow. What do you attribute to that kind of quick success for you? Uh, you know, I've tried to think about this uh, before. Um, I, you know, it, it's very possible to start a website and a blog and to go out there intentionally to make money and to be successful and to do that. But I think in my case, what helped me achieve success was I wasn't trying to do that. Uh, I, I mean, it wasn't my primary purpose anyway. Uh, I was very very much myself. I was unprofessional. I was upfront about who I was and what I was doing. And I think the one thing that helped me most was I approached money management from a story perspective. I mentioned the fact that I was focused on the psychology, which was not typical of, of most personal finance writers. But I was also focused on not just my own story, but the story of the readers who began to write to me and the people I knew in my life. I, I like to uh, share stories. And, and in fact, now when I speak at blogging conferences, which I do fairly often, I preach the importance of story. I, I think that story is a vital thing when you're communicating with people because it allows them to connect with you. And uh, I think that helped people identify with me and my my progress and helped get rich slowly grow. How did you learn about this idea about stories and cultivating stories and that's the way to connect people? Mainly through experience. I mean, I have always been a reader and I've always been a writer. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I'm not such a good storyteller in person as my friends will attest. I tend to get distracted by uh, details and tangents and stuff. But when I'm able to set things down on paper, I, I can edit myself and I can produce a, a compelling story that uh, uh, conveys a message, I guess. And, uh, you know, I, I've read a hell of a lot throughout the years and I, I've learned what kind of stories work for me when I read them and, and what kind of stories don't. So, um, now I've lost the thread of your original question, but the, uh, uh the bottom line is that I didn't set out with the intention that, oh, this was going to be a story oriented blog, but that's just how my writing works. Mm-hmm. 
No, and I and I love how you had you know kind of three simple goals right for when you started this. One was right. just to keep a record and mm-hmm. what of what you were learning, and that immediately when you said that went to, um, did you have? I mean, you know, money. There's so much shame around money, <laughs> and were you concerned about like showing the world potentially? Um, that oh, that's a great question, Karen. I, I think that. No, I wasn't that concerned. I know that a lot of people get a little worried about sharing their personal lives on the internet, but mm-hmm. I had been doing it for a long time already, and it never occurred to me that uh, it might be a problem. And because of the way I, it, because of the approach I took, I didn't have a lot of uh, trolls or haters or, or people complaining and saying, boy, you're being stupid. For one thing, I was very upfront. I knew when I was being stupid and I would point it out. I'm like, uh, <laughs> I'm dumb. I just went and bought $100 worth of comic books or, or whatever it was. And so um, I, I think it made it more relatable for a lot of people. And what about your wife? Was she okay with that? Yeah, she was. I mean, eventually we reached a point where um, as the income from the blog grew, uh, both my wife, uh, my accountant, and my attorney, all three started saying, uh, you should probably stop sharing uh, precise information. And, you know, when that trinity speaks, when your spouse, your attorney, and your accountant tell you the same thing, you kind of listen to them. So I stopped being as forthcoming as I wanted to be about uh, the income I was making. But uh, other than that, I continued to share the information and uh, she liked it. Mm-hmm. And why did they recommend that? Uh, you know, I think they thought it would make me a target. Um, the, the income did reach some crazy levels. Uh, there were months where I was making as much in one month as I used to make in a year, which just blew my mind. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think they didn't want, I, I don't know. For me, I look at somebody like Pat Flynn, who, mm-hmm. who's completely transparent with his finances, and uh, everyone knows how much he's making, and he's making a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And that's how I wanted to be, but um, the people around me, my tr- most trusted advisors, thought it was unwise to do that, and so I, I, I hated their advice. Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether that was a smart decision or not, but it's the decision I made. Well, I mean, when, when you were with your wife, and I think there's that partnership, and you honor that part, right? Right, Exactly. And and with Pat, he's been a guest on my show, and I was just thinking about him as you're talking about this. He's very open about it, but I'm sure he has an agreement with his wife about what she's comfortable with him disclosing, and that's kind of who, what he's built up to. Um, right. So, it, it, and that's an interesting thing about being uh, sharing your life in public, uh, whether it's on radio or in a blog or, or in, in any other format. It, it's interesting what you make public and what you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially when you're somebody as forthcoming as I am, because if you decide to keep certain facts hidden, uh, your readers or, or your viewers or whoever it is, they, they can take it as a betrayal of trust when they find out, oh, you, you have kept information hidden. And I've got two very specific examples. I, I know that uh, when it came time for me, uh, when, when I decided to get a divorce, uh, my readers found that as a betrayal, especially not just because they had grown to love and care for Chris as a as a person and a character on the blog, uh, but also because I, I kept that information hidden for a while. Mm-hmm. And also when I sold the blog, I was legally prohibited from discussing that, not due to my own choice, but because that's 
that was what I had to agree to in order to sell the blog. Uh, I couldn't talk about it for several years. And um, when I finally did reveal that, it, it rubbed some people the wrong way. Mm -hmm. Do you think like with, with the instance about your wife was that here you've been pretty open and candid and, but then they thought, Oh, this is just coming out of the left field about yeah. the divorce. What's yeah, wrong? I, I there mean, hasn't been any I, problems. Yeah. Well, and again, a financial blog is not where you talk about your <laughs> personal life. Right. And so, yeah, I think it was a, a, a surprising thing. Although some people had read between the lines and suspected something was going on, but, um, yeah, it was, it was an interesting thing. You know, one of the things that, uh, Brene Brown's been a frequent guest on the show. And one of the things that I've learned from her and is something that I always tell myself is vulnerability is earned, right? And you get the, you have the right to share your story and who do you share? What parts of your story? Cause we have so many different parts. So, um, it's interesting that some of your readers would be upset about the marriage part because that wasn't really part of the deal. The deal was right. about the personal finance, but so maybe there was, it was more about, um, you know, just boundaries, not your boundaries, but people th thinking, and I would think this way too, until I've learned this from Brene is that, well, he shared all of this. So why did I want to have the whole package? I want all the information. Right. right. I, I think it's partly that, but there's also a, a huge stigma to divorce. It, 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 I know that I certainly shared this for a long time that I was raised in a culture where divorce just was not an option. My parents stayed together, even though they were miserable mm -hmm. and, uh, and it was just not part of uh, uh, my worldview, I guess. And, and I think that's the same for a lot of people. And so it, it can be very shocking when somebody you've come to know, even if it's just online, uh, makes a choice that you consider, uh, I don't know, I don't want to say wrong, but a choice that you disagree with, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I get that. And then you talked about the other goal that you had was helping others achieve the same thing, like friends and family. Right. And uh, when Ramit Sethi was on my show, he talked about, you know, when he was first in college and he was like trying to help people and they would go running the other way. Did your friends and family go running away when you started to talk about this personal finance stuff? No, I mean, I didn't do a lot of talking about it. Well, yes, I did. Okay. No, no they didn't go running away because they had been trying to get through to me for a long, long time. My wife had been very smart with money. We kept completely separate finances and her finances were great. And she had been very patient and, and uh, long suffering as I tried to get my act together. And I had friends try to uh, give hints about what I should do, but I just wasn't open to it or I wasn't ready to hear them. And it was only once I'd hit financial rock bottom that I was ready to hear what people had to say. And I had two different friends come to me and recommend two different books. And I read those uh, and then read some more personal finance books and, and uh, began to assimilate some of this information into my life and my decision-making process. What are your uh, favorite books on personal finance? Oh, that's great. So uh, I have different favorites depending on okay. you know, what the situation is for. Uh, so for me, getting out of debt, I really liked Dave Ramsey's book, The Total Money Makeover. It's got great advice. Um, it's very religious. It's very Christian. And for some people, that's a, a great thing. And for some people, it's a disadvantage. But I, no matter where you're coming from, I think you can read that and discard the stuff that you don't agree with and uh, take the stuff, the solid stuff, and, and go with it. Uh, another book is uh, Your Money or Your Life by mm -hmm. Joe Dominguez and Vicki Robin. 
and they're like the opposite. They take a very new age, kind of almost woo-woo approach sometimes. And, and again, you can go there, uh, take the solid information and leave aside the stuff that you don't agree with. You don't, I, I always get frustrated with people who read books and want to throw out all of the book just because they don't agree with part of it. Mm-hmm. I think it's very important to read books and pick and choose uh, the information that's in there that is appropriate for your life. So, so those are two great books. Um, I actually think Ramit's book is great for people starting out. That's I Will Teach You to Be Rich. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there are a handful of books that I really like about investing. Um, I, but I often say that some of the best personal finance books aren't even about personal finance. Uh, for example, I really like a book called Mastery by a guy named George Leonard. Mm-hmm. And it's about, uh, uh, I guess, coping with failure and, and building a mindset where you're, you become, you take control of your life. Mm-hmm. That's a great book. Uh, there's also a book, perhaps the most influential book that I've ever read for myself is called uh, How I Found Freedom in, in, I can't even say it, How I Found Freedom in an Unfree World. And uh, that's by a guy named Harry Brown. Uh, it's full of libertarian politics. And again, this is something where you have to choose to leave that aside. Or if you agree with libertarian politics, you can embrace it. But on a personal level, I I found that very motivating and um, it helped me uh, do even more with my finances. You know, it sounds like what you're talking about, and this is what I tell my listeners is, or invite my listeners to do is to take nuggets right? There's, there's always going to be some sort of nuggets of information, but you're right. We don't have, it doesn't have to be black and white. Like, Oh, I, you know, Dave Ramsey, there's, there's a religious aspect, so I can't read it. There's still going to be some good content. Can you, can you tune out the stuff that doesn't ring to you? Exactly. And I feel like so much in our society, we get into this all or nothing mindset Mm -hmm. where we have to agree completely with somebody or we can't agree with them at all. And it drives me nuts, which is, uh, I've hinted at this online. Well, I've said it outright. I just hate the political system in the United States. It's very polarizing. And it's been that way since its inception. I understand that. I understand the history. But it drives me nuts because uh, you end up with people who don't agree. Most of my friends here in Portland are, are very liberal. They're Democrats and they're very liberal. And they can't agree with anything the Republicans say. And I think that's ridiculous. I think that uh, there's good stuff and bad stuff on both sides of the aisle. And I don't know. Mm-hmm. No, there's life isn't black and white, right? Even exactly. with personal finance, life is not. There's not. There will be some people that will be do the absolutes, and I think it's easier to preach the absolutes because it's harder to. You have to get connected with what are my values, what's important to me, what's the kind of life exactly, I want to live. Exactly, exactly. And I think getting connected to your personal values is the important thing. Mm-hmm. So my the one of the books, Your Money or Your Life, is one of my big books because I was just this personal finance geek in my twenties. I wanted to learn <laughs> everything about money, and I had a, you know, um, I had a belief growing up that money doesn't happen to people like us. So once I took a personal finance co- class in college and I realized, holy moly, there are tools out there uh-huh. and you can create this. I became just this, you know, personal finance geek for a long time. But so one was your money or your life. The other one that is still the one that I really live by is um, the millionaire next door. Oh yeah. I thought that was a great book just in about, and so there were a lot of guiding principles that, you know, I live to, to this day. And so that was, that's one of my favorite books, but I have so many yeah. in my bookshelf. Yeah, I, I agree. Millionaire Next Door is, is great. I often cite uh, in there, they talk about the one quality that 
uh, unites millionaires is frugal, frugal, frugal. And, mm-hmm. and uh, or, or I think they say that's the three words you can use to describe millionaires is frugal, frugal, frugal. And so I cite that all the time when people talk about, oh, no, you just need to earn more money or whatever I'm talking about. No, frugality is important too. But, Corin, you said something that I think that's very interesting. You said money doesn't happen to people like us. That's mm-hmm. a belief you used to have. Yep. And I find that interesting. And um, because it places the it's like placing an external locus of control there mm-hmm. as if life is happening to you or um, you have no control over whether you're going to become wealthy or uh, secure or not. Have you changed your mindset since then? Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, You know, and it was just, it was growing up in my family and there was a lot of struggle and a lot of people that I saw, they were struggling right, right with money. And so at some point, you know, it was just a very little girl move of, oh, well, money just doesn't happen to people like us. Yeah. Right. And, and I carried that story and, you know, I wound up going to college and I put myself into college and I was very fortunate um, to live in California. And at the time it was very affordable to get a college education, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, really going to that, there were a few things that happened. One is that, um, I was coaching, I was an assistant swim coach with, um, after I had finished my collegiate swimming career and I was coaching in the men's head coach, I was his assistant. I, he was independently wealthy. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wow. You're independently wealthy. There are people like this, not just what we see on TV, you know, not the lifestyles of the rich and famous. And, um, and then I took that class and just it, that all of a sudden opened up my mindset of you can make choices. You can go and create things differently. Right. And so, you know, sometimes I still have that old voice and not so much anymore, but even five or seven years ago when that old voice would come in and be like, oh my gosh, you're going to be like your parents. It was like, that's not my money story. You know, I've always been really good with money. And um, so I, I just remind myself of that. So when you talk about the psychology or the mindset of money, I totally agree mm-hmm. with you. And, and I think it's very important what you just said, that you can make choices. Uh, for me, I, I just mentioned the book, How I Found Freedom in an Unfree World. And that is the central theme of that book, which is you don't have to let life just happen to you. You can make choices. You can improve your life. You can change your situation. And, uh, well, uh, and, and it's a theme of many books. I mean – uh, I think of uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, yep. in which he says that everyone more or less chooses the kind of things that's, that happen to them. And uh, it's, yeah. JD, we're, we're on the same wavelength. Like we're talking to each other just with our brains because every time I, you're, you, I'm thinking about what I'm going to say next, you're already saying it. So, <laughs> yeah, no, Man's Search for Meaning, I, that, that's a book that I really guides me. Um, Simon Sinek came on here many years ago and um, talked about that. And I think about that like, you know, what is what is the meaning that I have for my life, right? Right. And the and the three ways of going about it, you know, being of service, helping others, going through loving struggle, um, or going through relationships and having deep struggle. Um, but Victor Frankel's, I think, a great example for the listeners out there of when we say that you can go create it. Here was somebody who was in 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 a concentration camp. Right. In mm-hmm. trying to make the best out of really dire life circumstances. Right. And, and he observed the people around him and uh, he observed that it, it tended to be attitude mm-hmm. uh, that shaped their experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone was pretty much in the same place, but some people chose to experience in one way and some people chose to experience it in another. And uh, I think that's true of, of anybody. I always say that you can't choose the cards you're dealt, but you can choose how to play them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, yeah. So why why were you 
uh, why did you allow yourself to go deep into debt? Mm -hmm. Um, that is a fine, fine question. And it gets to the psychology. When I was young, my family was very poor. Mm -hmm. Uh, perhaps not poor by the standards of comparing uh, to other countries, but mm -hmm. by U.S. standards, we were poor. Mm -hmm. And um, my, my parents also weren't very good with money. There were times when we weren't poor. Uh, my father was an entrepreneur, and he started a couple of businesses, and a couple were successful. He sold one for uh, $300,000 in, I don't know when it was, like 1977, 78. Mm -hmm. And that was a lot of money back then. It's still a lot of money today. Uh, he was supposed to get paid $30,000 a year for 10 years. But then the company that bought his business went bankrupt. And so he only, I think he got one payment. So he got $30,000 for that. Uh, but rather than set that money aside, to provide a cushion for the family so that if something bad happened, he had already spent the money on, he bought a boat, he bought an airplane, he, he bought all these big toys. And uh, so throughout my childhood, for the most part, uh, my parents struggled with money. They, they didn't have money to uh, buy the things they wanted or needed. And uh, when they did come into money, they would, they would spend it foolishly on just big things all at once instead of saving and, and creating a buffer. Um, so that's how I learned to manage money. And then I went to college. Uh, I put myself through college. I, I knew I was going to have to do that if I wanted to go to college because uh, I couldn't afford it. I didn't understand student loans back then, mm -hmm. and uh, I knew my parents couldn't afford it, so I knew I had to um, uh, work and I had to get scholarships, which I did. Um, so I got to college, and the people around me tended to come from wealthier environments. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know their financial circumstances. Maybe they worked for their money. At the time, I felt like they were being given things, but mm -hmm. you know, I was just jealous. I think, and uh, but I wanted to fit in, and so. Hey, fortunate for me, in the student center, you could sign up for credit cards. And so I did. And uh, I quickly got into debt trying to maintain this lifestyle that I couldn't afford. I was just trying to pretend to be somebody else. And then when I graduated from college, I, I continued to live on credit cards. And uh, I quickly, well, within five years, I had over $25,000 in consumer debt. And that, and that ballooned eventually to over $35,000 in consumer debt. And... Uh, I feel like I wanted to have all the things that I didn't have when I was a kid mm -hmm. and I, I wanted them now. I wasn't willing to wait. And it, it took me years. It took me a couple of decades to finally understand the importance of waiting and uh, to realize that although I can have anything I want, I can't have everything I want. Mm -hmm. I have to pick and choose. But so that brings me to um, one uh, great book that I actually read that was pretty funny was a book by Charles Barkley. And I don't remember <laughs> the title, but it was when he first got into the NBA and he bought all these cars. And I think Dr. J was on his team. And this is back in the day when the rookies would really listen to the veterans. Right. But Dr. J said, how many cars can you drive at one time? <laughs> <laughs> one Well, then sell the other cars invest your money, drive the one, and in 20 years, you can buy as many cars as you want. <laughs> Good for Dr. J. Yep. So, and, and, and I, and I think about that a lot of, cause you know, there is that, and we get so much pressure and there's media and there's constant right in our culture of have it now. Right. And, and when you're in college, I mean, I had 10 credit cards my freshman year. Right? No way. Really? Yeah. I had 10. Wow. <laughs> yeah. 
And but I did, and my parents had gone through two bankruptcies. My dad was an entrepreneur, and so I understand that ups and downs. Mm-hmm. But um, my dad had been really big about me building credit, and so I would always sign up for those freebie things, you know, free bag of M and M's, a free T shirt, whatever was free, right. Right? right? But he did instill in me, don't carry a balance. So there was only once when I was an undergrad did I actually. Um, have a balance and then but I was I just wound up picking up a bunch of extra shifts and I had it paid off in a month I wouldn't wow. borrow the money from anybody but so that's been a v- big principle in me is to not go into debt right um, and see my parents I, I'm not sure that they were ever in debt in fact I can't remember them ever being in debt mm-hmm. uh, I know they didn't have credit cards um, the, the credit cards were not as ubiquitous in the 1970s and early 1980s so um, Plus, I don't know whether my parents could have qualified for them. And I just can't remember them ever being in debt. That was never an issue. It was, it was just they didn't have money to pay their bills. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, what, what was the, the thought that you had when you were telling yourself it was okay to spend this money and on these credit cards? Well, again, that's a great question. Um, uh, I would tell myself, oh, I'll have the money for it next year mm-hmm. uh, or uh, next month or whatever. And the thing is, I never did have the money for it uh, next year or next month. Or if I did, I would spend it on something else. I never spent it on paying down the debt. Mm-hmm. Um, I just paid the uh, interest right along. It was, it was foolish. And it was, I was the credit card company's ideal client, <laughs> carrying $25,000 and paying every month on time. And yeah, they loved me, I'm sure. Did you, were you living in in integrity with yourself when you were carrying this debt? That's a great question, but I don't understand completely what you mean. So a lot of times, right, if, if you're, if you're telling yourself, I'll have the money for it next year, did you really believe that? Or was it really kind of like a subtle lie that you were telling yourself to rationalize the purchase? I think it was both, to be honest. Um, I did believe it, no doubt. Uh-huh. Uh, but at the same time, I recognized that I'd been saying this for a long time and it had never come true. And uh, I, I know that I was waiting for something magic to happen. I wanted a magic bullet. I wanted to. I wanted a windfall. Uh-huh. Um, but even then, for example, my father died in 1995 and um, I got $5,000 in life insurance money, which I could have used to pay off some of my credit card debt. And I think I did use like $1,000 to do that. But I also went out and spent $4,000 on a new computer and all this other stuff. And uh, so even then, my, my belief that some magic bullet was going to come along or I would get a windfall, my actions proved that even that wasn't going to be enough because I wasn't going to use the money for that purpose anyway. Interesting. So what were you telling yourself that uh, would put you in a place where you were not, um, you would say one thing, but then you would do a different thing. I don't know. I think part of the problem was, again, you were, you were talking about integrity, mm-hmm. uh, just a minute ago. Um, for a long time, I was not happy. I was an unhappy man. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I was trying to live in a way that I thought others wanted me to live or, mm. In a way, I, I don't know, I, I thought it would appear great to the outside world. And part of that was having and doing certain things. And 
this goes much, much deeper than how I spent my money. It goes to uh, staying in uh, an unhappy relationship. It goes to um, j just all the things I was doing as far as activities and uh, employment and so on. I, I, I was afraid to do what I wanted to do. This is what the bottom line is. is I was afraid to be myself because I thought people wouldn't like who I was. Um, and plus I was afraid that making the changes would be too tumultuous. And, uh, and so I did these things like accrue debt to try to be somebody other than who I really was. Wow. And so when you did do that, did you like yourself more? Did people like you more? No, I mean, um, th th that's the thing you don't, when you do these sort of things, when you try to please other people, when you live for other people, uh, yeah, you might please them for a time, but really people are more concerned about themselves and they're more worried about themselves than they are about you. And so maybe you please them for a little bit, but then all of a sudden they're focused on themselves and you have to live with who you are and you're being somebody that's not congruent with what you believe and what you value. And it took me a long time and a lot of reading to realize, no, I've got to I've got to be true to myself and uh, doing that, choosing to be true to myself was a gradual process or learning how to be true to myself. It was a gradual process and it was tumultuous. It, it, it brought about a lot of changes and some of them were painful and difficult, mm -hmm. but ultimately it brought me to where I am today and uh, I can be myself and I am myself and I'm much happier. Wow. Did you, um, with was get rich slowly your blog a, a way to kind of cultivate you being yourself and and showing up and allowing yourself to be vulnerable and open and kind of put yourself out there like this is who i am and you don't have to read it but if you want to it's here and um not on a conscious level mm -hmm. uh, i'm not even sure it was on an unconscious level uh it, it was more I do a lot of my thinking and developing out loud, uh -huh. uh, whether it's in conversation with other people or whether it's through writing or, or whatever. And so it was more a forum for me or it became a forum for me uh, to grow and develop and to, um... oh, interesting. So I was getting feedback. And so in a way I was kind of living for other people, even on Get Rich Slowly. Mm. And um, there came a point where I became... Uh, fed up with the site. Uh, this was after I had sold it. Well, part of the reason I sold it was I was becoming frustrated with it. But then I stuck around for another three years. And over those three years, I became increasingly frustrated. And eventually I quit. And I went away for a year. And I've only just recently returned. And the reason I quit was because I no longer needed this external validation. And uh, I had a, that had been something that was building. And uh, I had been living too much for the approval of my readers on Get Rich Slowly, I think. And so I decided, nope, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go away. I'm going to do my own thing. And only once I was able to say, okay, I'm comfortable with who I am. I don't care what other people think. Then I was ready to return to Get Rich Slowly. And it's been much better for me because I'm able to write about what I want and what I think without regards to other people's opinion. Mm -hmm. I think that's a... Um... I'm a recovering, and I say recovering, approval whore. Uh, <laughs> so I think that's a hard thing because uh, 
it, it we, you know we were talking about black and white thinking right black yeah. everything's black and white so it's like either we try to get people to just love us and we're out there you know dancing and trying to be this approval whore or you know the other side is well i'm not going to care about any opinion and go on the other side but it's again back in that space in between and mm-hmm. um and that i think it means that we it, it's like spending money i mean you need to be conscious in your life don't you when you are trying to live and do your work and can appreciate when somebody sends you an email. Like I got an email yesterday about how my show has really helped somebody. And mm-hmm. I, and I work on receiving that, but also not letting it take my ego and go crazy. Yeah. And I think that's smart. And th- yes, as you say, like a recovering approval for it, it's a, it's a, it's important to do that and to find a balance Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also tough to do. It takes work. It it, ta- it takes a lot of work. I mean, I think that's, you know, like I've talked with people and we've talked about, um, there's an author that I had on and we were talking about sugar, right? And he's like, no, you just must absolutely cut it out. Well, right. that, that can be really hard for people. And But I understand because he's saying it's harder to, you know, live in that space of, you know, in between. But I mm-hmm. do think if you can practice to live consciously, it it's it's it can be easier than like saying absolutely no and restricting or at least for me I can't be restricted. Yeah, and, and I think that you're hitting on something very important. Uh, I, I talk about what I call conscious spending, which mm-hmm. is actually a, a phrase that I got from Ramit Sethi. Uh, other people call it mindful spending, but it's basically the concept that uh, every purchase you make, you do it with intention. Mm-hmm. You don't do things out of habit. You don't just pick up candy in the uh, checkout line at the grocery store or you you, you don't go uh, buy things just because somebody else has it. Y- you, uh, you intentionally make your decisions regarding your money. And I think it's also important to do this with uh, time and how you spend your time. I know a lot of people come home and they just, they turn on the television and they sit down and they watch television and they enjoy it, no question. But um, for me, I find or I have found that by being conscious of how I spend my time, uh, I'm much more productive and I'm much happier. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to watch a hell of a lot of TV. And to be honest, I'm watching more now uh, with my girlfriend. She likes certain shows, so that's what we do in the evening. Uh, but I, I try to be very conscious about that. If I have something that I could better spend my time on, I choose to do that instead. For example, I'm writing an ebook right now and that's taking a lot of my time. And so I need to make a conscious choice to spend time on that ebook instead of doing things that might be more fun. Um, but I also have to make sure that I'm doing it because I want to do it. And going back to what I said earlier, make the choices because they're true to who I am and what I want to do and what I want to accomplish instead of what I'm, instead of trying to do it for other people. I think that's really important to go back and make, the, when you ask those questions, am I making the choices that's in line with who I am? Mm-hmm. Right. And and I think anything that we do, because sometimes and I've gotten a lot better, you know, with the whole social media thing um, is that I make a conscious choice of if I jump on Facebook, like paying attention to how much time, because it you can all of a sudden lose an hour or two <laughs> being on social media. And um, is and then afterwards, there's so much regret and remorse that I don't want. Right. I've been fortunate that uh, I haven't gone down the social media rabbit hole too much. I mean. I have a presence there, but it just, it, it, it's not tremendously appealing to me. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so you, when you, when you, families and friends didn't run, they were actually excited because they were excited that you were going to make some changes mm-hmm. and you were able to make money. And did you ever have concern 
about, you know, having this imposter syndrome of who am I to be out there writing about this? Yeah. And that became especially true as time went on. At first, it wasn't such a big deal. Uh, I knew I was, I had a growing audience, but um, I didn't feel like there were any expectations, you know, Mm -hmm. it was just very clear I was an average guy and so on. But eventually, um, people began to treat me as if I were some sort of financial expert. And that made me uncomfortable because I didn't feel like I was a financial expert. Just the opposite. I, as I've said over and over again, I'm just an average guy who who's chronicles his experience with money and shared what he's learned about money. And so uh, I felt as if I didn't have this expertise that other people uh, expected of me. And this has become a real issue as time has gone on. Uh, I I have a column in Entrepreneur Magazine. I've had it for three years. Uh, my last column appears this month. And during that time, it's been a very tough thing for me to write the column because I feel like, how? why am I a financial expert and what do I know about entrepreneurship? Why am I the one writing this column? And I know that a lot of other people go through the same experience. Um, I don't know whether you've talked to Tess Vigeland uh, yep. before. Uh, she and I have, have talked at length about this with each other that we both experience the same thing where why are we being treated as the experts? We're just average people. And so that's a tough thing to wrestle with. You know, it's interesting and I'm glad you brought that up because most people would think the imposter syndrome would come in the beginning, but right. But you weren't putting any airs. You were like, Hey, I'm this regular guy and I've, I've messed up and I've had my mistakes and I'm coming here to figure it out. But it came later. Well, and see, that's a great question. To me, it just seems natural that it comes later because, yeah, in the beginning, I'm not – well, at no point have I tried to be or pretend that I am anything other than who I am. But I feel like the expectations of others changed as time went on so that eventually uh, I felt like they expected me to be somebody other than who I was, and so that's where the imposter syndrome came in. Interesting. And how do you work through that? Well – some of it never goes away, but some of it, I just, I try to think it through rationally because I realize, okay, look, I've been reading and writing about money for nearly a decade. It's my daily existence. It's my daily life. I do know more than most people. I don't know the details. I'm not a certified financial planner. I'm not an accountant. Uh, but the things that I know and understand, I know and understand. And so as part of this, I've learned to, when people ask me questions about money that I don't know the answer to, I just say, I don't know the answer to that. I think where I got into trouble in the past was I would try to, because they expected me to know the answers, I would try to an- give answers to the questions or I would accept interviews. I remember once I was interviewed on a Seattle radio station about retirement planning. I don't know anything about retirement planning. And this was back in the beginning. So I knew even less. And it was a disaster. It was a total disaster. And I, I felt like a, a fool, like a, an imposter. And uh, nowadays, I would never take that interview because I'm not the right person for the job. And so I, it's recognizing what I'm good at and what I do know and, and realizing, oh, there are pl- places where I am an expert and I, I can uh, speak with authority. Do you ever, because I know sometimes this happens to me, I'll think, 
well, why am I telling them this? Because it's so basic because it was something that I didn't understand, but you know, now I have it, I've got it down and I feel like I'm always talking about it. You know, mindset's a big thing. Right. And, um, and then I was having this conversation with somebody the other day and I'm like, but of course they should know this, but they don't. Right. right. And do you ever like kind of disregard something that was something that you really had to work hard to learn, but now it's so part of your being that you would expect other people to know it as well? Yes, yes, all the time. Uh, so I mentioned that I'm working on this ebook. Uh huh. And the conceit of the ebook is that you are the chief financial officer of your own life. And uh, I have an editor that's working with me. And uh, I gave her an early draft of one of the chapters. And uh, I didn't explain some of this stuff because I thought, oh, no, this is basic. I don't need to explain this. And she came back and she said, JD, I am so lost by this chapter. You're just way over my head. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh. I guess I'm assuming too much on the part of the reader. And uh, yeah, and this happens a lot of times, especially when I think about investing, because to me, I I've read and thought a lot about investing, and there's a very clear answer for 99% of the population on how they should invest. And because it's so clear to me, and it's so clear to most experts, I expect that it's clear to everybody. And uh, it it's not. And so like in talking with my girlfriend who, who's wanting to figure out how to invest for retirement, and even though she's read my book and I say the very same thing in my book, uh, I realize, oh, no, I, I need to take some time and be patient and explain to Kim what my thinking is and why I think it and uh, why she should follow that advice. Okay. So now that you've opened up that door, what is your clear um, thoughts about what 99% of the population should do in, in terms of investing? Uh, invest in a broad-based index fund, like an S&P 500 yep. index fund, and just put all your money there. Don't touch it. Don't worry about it. Just put it there. Put as much money as you possibly can in it. And uh, yeah, just ignore it. That's I, it. I End so, of story. Yeah, it, I so agree with you because I was in a couple of different investment clubs, again, in my personal finance quest. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, some of, and they were with like one, the last one that I was in really bright, very successful, big movers and shakers. And everything that personal finance book tells you not to do, we did in that stock market crash <laughs> of 2001. It was fascinating. I couldn't believe it. And um, and then after that, I just realized, you know what, index or mutual funds are just the way to go. You know, yeah. manage your costs and go live your life. Yep. Exactly right. Because what am I going to know here in my little town of Davis that some Wall Street Journal per or Wall Street person is going to know, you know? Well, and, and the fact is, even the the Wall Street people don't really know that much. Yep. Um, now I'm a, I don't want to go deep in down that rabbit hole, but mm -hmm. if you if you read up on it, uh, you, you come to realize that uh, for ninety nine percent of the people, for the people who are not Warren Buffett, uh, index funds, low cost index funds that invest in the broad market are the way to go. So going back to this journey, this incredible journey, you're just this ordinary man who's kind of, who's created this extraordinary life and very life changing. You did it in the early, kind of the early stages of the internet, right? What about people that want to start now? Is it possible for them to create changes in their life as well? Or is it, you were kind of the first of the wild, wild west? Uh, I'm not sure I understand the question. I don't feel like I was in the early stages of the internet. Um, <laughs> no, well, I don't. I mean, the, the the early stages of the web was the early 1990s, and then I guess early stages of blogging. Maybe I was there. Yeah, you were the early stages of blogging. 
okay, that so copy so blogger started yeah. around that time. A ask your question again. So, so for somebody who's kind of tuning in and going, well, that's great. Cause right. It, we go back to the mindset and people can really discount this interview and say, well, that's great for JD, but he's been toiling around with, you know, computers and the internet since the nineties. You right. know, he did a bunch of blogs. He finally came to the get rich slowly, but, and, and the, and there weren't that many blogs back then compared to what now. Right. Can I really go and make a difference? Yeah, I think absolutely. Um, I look around at the people I know who are, are um, successful with blogs and most of the people who are actually successful now are people who have only started in the past couple of years. Mm -hmm. I look in the, in my own space, in the personal finance space, uh, one of the most successful blogs is called MrMoneyMustache.com. And uh, Pete, the guy who runs the blog, he only started it a couple of years ago and he's been a tremendous success. Um, and I look at other people who are, who have started blogs and I actually look at my own projects. I, I'm working with a couple of people on a couple of different blog projects and, uh, we're not intimidated by the number of blogs out there. I, I firmly believe that if you create quality content and create meaningful relationships with other people, uh, other bloggers, other, other people that are out there on the internet, uh, you can build an audience, share content, tell stories, um, provide useful information, you'll get readers. So how did you, how do you go about creating meaningful relationships with others? Uh, well, I think you talk with them and you listen, you, you do things like right now I, I'm talking with you and, uh, uh, you and I met at a, at a conference and, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you, you just make it, you keep yourself open. And I think this is especially important to do in real life. Uh, when you meet people in real life, be open and, and have conversations with them about what's important to them. Uh, don't make it all about you. Make it about them. Uh, and during the process, uh, they'll learn a little bit about you and what's important to you and what you're doing. And uh, I, I think you can build a, a blog or a website starting with just your local network and letting it expand beyond that. And especially with the advent of Facebook, you can do that there too. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah. Well, and then the other thing that's interesting with you is that, right, you started writing about what was it, comic books and yeah. cats, right? <laughs> <laughs> comic book and cats. Then you went off and did this money thing. And, but you're still into comic books and your other, in your new website, which I'll have links to on your interview page, um, you will talk about that. And, and you're going in 2014 and you have plans for something else. Do you care to share that with my listeners? Um, well, I've, <laughs> I, I would, except for I have too many plans. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought you so, were going to simplify, do one thing and focus on fiction writing. Yes. Yes. Okay. So th this is the issue is I'm the kind of guy who has so many ideas going at once and that it's easy to get overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And so I've, I've recently been talking about how uh, I'm trying to focus on one thing at a time, and I am. So, for example, right now, my one project is this ebook. There are other things that I know need to get done, but the ebook, until it gets done, I can't turn my attention to these other things. I'm trying to be very respectful of this because I'm finding that I'm doing much better work this way. Um, and so next year, I've discovered I hate deadlines. And uh, I want to move away from anything with a deadline. I'm already a month behind deadline on this ebook. Um, and also, I want to return to my roots. I started writing poetry and fiction, and I would love to write fiction. So, 
what I want to do for next year is, is to focus on learning to write fiction again. So I'm going to take a fiction writing class. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's true that I have two or three other projects behind the scenes. I just got to figure out how to balance all this stuff, mm-hmm. and which one to focus on it mm-hmm. at any given moment. Well, so, you know, I think this is great information for the listeners is that here, you, you know, the old world of work was you went down this path and you just kept climbing each, you know, rung of the ladder. And mm-hmm. that was how you defined yourself. And then with you and what a lot of my guests that I interview, it's this kind of windy and there's all these different variables, right? Where kind of, it sounds like for you, JD, it's you are the connecting piece to all these different limbs, I guess. Uh huh. And that's something for people to realize that it doesn't, you don't have to be stuck in personal finance for the rest of your life, do you? No, not, not at all. And, yeah. and in fact, um, the project I think I'm most excited about is uh, only peripherally related to personal finance. Well, mm-hmm. and the fiction writing isn't related to it at all. Mm-hmm. But uh, other, other than the fact that I developed my writing chops in writing about personal finance, but uh, I've become really fascinated with this whole notion of personal independence. I, again, going back to that book, I keep mentioning how I found freedom in an unfree world. And so personal independence and financial independence, I feel like they're very closely in, intertwined. And uh, so in working on this ebook that I also keep mentioning, I did a whole huge path. I wrote 50,000 words that won't even make it into the ebook because they're all about personal independence. I went, it, it wasn't related to how to be the chief financial officer of your own life at all. And I was like, doggone it. I've just wasted all this time and all this material. And then I realized, Oh no, this, this stuff on personal independence is actually what I've been thinking about and what's important to me and what I'm passionate about right now. I can start a website around this. And so one of my goals for 2014, probably even before I do the fiction writing thing is to launch a website and use this material that I've written for the ebook, and just it's already in uh, about forty or fifty chunks. I can put out one of these chunks every week, and there I've got a new blog, mm-hmm. and uh, it's as if I've pre-written a blog for a year. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm really excited about this because I think it's great material that can help people improve their lives. I really love that. I'm excited about that personal independence. So as we round up this show, what are two takeaways that you can give my listeners about creating the life that they want? Well, I would say, first of all, it's important to get clear on what it is that you want. Um, I think it's very easy to get wrapped up in life and to just kind of be reactive instead of proactive. And uh, I think it's beneficial for people, especially around the start of the year, to sit down and say, you know what, I'm going to spend an hour or two or three and think about where it is I want to go. What do I want to be and what do I want to do? Um, One way to do this is to think about, okay, if I were coming to the end of my life, how would I want people to remember me? Uh, What would I want my obituary to say? And that sounds kind of morbid, but it's a way to try to get clear on what direction you're going. What is your purpose? What, What is your mission statement, I guess? And so I think that's one takeaway I would uh, recommend for your listeners is to, uh, to develop some sort of personal mission and not be wedded to it. Understand that your personal mission may change over the course of your life. Mm-hmm. But when you have a personal mission, it helps you set other goals and it helps you direct every action that you have. Um, 
So that's definitely one thing that I uh, recommend. The other is uh, once you have this personal mission, um, get clear on uh, uh, your, your ongoing personal values so that you're making decisions that are true to who you are instead of trying to make decisions that please other people or making decisions or choosing to do things because you think that's what you're supposed to do or you have to do. You should never be doing something because you're supposed to or because you have to. You should be doing things because you want to do them. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think it's a very important uh, but difficult uh, skill to develop. Absolutely. J.D., thank you for being a guest today on my show. Yeah, thanks, Karen. This is Karen Motokaitis, and you've been listening to How She Really Does It, and I will have all links to J.D. on the interview page. Thanks for listening to How She Really Does It. I invite you to subscribe to my weekly newsletter at howshereallydoesit.com. I do this show each week for you, so you can now see the windows of possibilities in your own life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. We can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. I believe there are possibilities for all of us, not just the ones who've acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. With this show, maybe you can now see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibility. Each week, I bring a guest who represents those possibilities. They too have had their own struggles and uncertainty, yet somehow they have found their way. My guests are an example of what is possible when you continue, when you learn, leap, fall down, and get back up. I invite you into this space so you can ask yourself, if that is possible for them, what is possible for me? Really ask yourself that. I would love to connect with you. Please join me at www.com howshereallydoesit.com and thanks for listening today. On a lake She is dreaming She is drifting Never been so wide